Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop, although admittedly they could pause it for quite a long time. We've been gone for a few months now, but that doesn't matter because we're back with that most desirable of audio treats, a Christmas and New Year special in two parts, no less. Now, in case you've forgotten, I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, although sometimes I get called Waldy, especially in Germany, where Waldy is a very popular dog's name. And I'm joined on this Christmas special by a man who's redefined and enlarged that important art world role of being Bendor Grosvenor. Before Bendy came along, the art world could sense that something was missing, but it didn't know what. Now it does. And today, the name Bendor Grosvenor rings out across the land, clear as a bell, bringing hope and curiosity wherever it's heard. He's the Robin Hood of art, the Sir Lancelot of aesthetics. Oh, Bendy, I've missed you so much. Uh, but I've never been quite sure what it is you do. So, so, so what is that? The only Robin I am, Wildy, is the Robin to your Batman. But uh, nice to see you again. Do you know, my daughter, very excited to hear that we're doing a Christmas special, has given me my own sound effects. So for this year's Christmas special, listen, I've got my own jingly bells. And I'm going one better because she's given me a little device here which plays her favourite Christmas box. Are you ready? It lights up. You can't see this distance, but listen. Oh. What? Well, um, well, the battery's oh. running out on that, so that, that didn't work quite so well. But I've just got the bells, so that's good. We've got bells. We've got loads and loads of bells. Um, indeed we have. So anyway, Bendy, we've got this packed Christmas special for our listeners, uh, with Bendy and I doing all sorts of things, uh, anniversaries, interviews, and the two of us actually meeting in real life because we're going around the old master sales guessing what things will fetch. So forget Hamilton versus Verstappen in Formula One. Waldy versus Bendy <laughs> at Sotheby's is the Christmas contest that counts. So that's all coming up. And don't forget, of course, that everything we talk about, all the pictures we mention in this entire podcast, every single one of them uh, will be shown to you on the podcast pages of zzzfilms.com. Yeah, and without uh, wishing to give too much away, I, no spoilers here, Waldy, but... I think the most exciting thing about my year is that you and I met up in person a week ago in London to look at paintings, and we're still talking to each other. There were no no blows were struck, and here we are. Isn't that great? It, it is great, and, and that's because you're a very gentle and lovely man, um, <laughs> and, and you're very good at conceding defeat, and, and that's always a good quality in a fellow. Anyway, the thing is, that's coming up later on, but first, we need to go bendy somewhere that's very close to the hearts of all our listeners, We've heard about it so often, it feels like home. And for one of us, it is. Bendel Grover had a farm. E-I-E-I-O So, Bendy, we're back on the farm up there in Scotland on the northern borders. First of all, what kind of a winter are you having up there? Uh, a very windy one, Weld. We had Storm Arwen a couple of weeks ago, and it's totally knocked us out. Uh, we're down... I think I lost count of about 60, 60 plus trees. So uh, it's quite a sad sight. I, I love my trees, Weld, and um, Storm Irwin has, um, has really uh, taken its toll here. I don't know, it's going to take us a long time with the chainsaw. I've been out um, many days with the chainsaw and I've barely made a dent in the damage. 
Good Lord, I can't see you with a chainsaw, Bendy. When we met and we were going around Sotheby's together, and you were so smart and everything, the last thing I could imagine is you with a chainsaw. But I, I guess you have to be pretty good at it if you're a rugged farmer like you are. Oh, yes, I've got all the kit. Bright orange helmets, safety goggles, all the stuff. Chainsawing away. Anyway, the thing is, in honour of your chainsawing skills, uh, we've decided to do something very pertinent, haven't we, for the Bendor Farm section here, because we're going to choose the best trees in art, aren't we? Mm -hmm. um, we've got ourselves a short list. We're going to talk through it. We're going to have a little vote, give everything a ranking, one to five. Taya's going to join in, our producer, and then we're going to decide what is the best tree in art. Uh, we've done ducks, we've done donkeys, we've done all sorts of stuff, but now it's a time of trees. As I said, everything we talk about, every picture, it's all on show uh, at zczfilms.com in the podcast pages, uh, so you can decide at home as well uh, as, as listening to us. Um, can I kick it off with, with my first choice, Bendy? Well, please do, yes. I'm going to go for a Rembrandt, right? Oh. And it's not a Rembrandt painting, it's actually a Rembrandt etching. Indeed, one of his finest and biggest etchings. And it's called three trees um and what it shows is believe it or not three trees on a hill and it's above all it's a magic piece of technique here we all know how diff difficult etching is anyway and we know that rembrandt was the master of it but but he excels himself here and he also mixes in lots of other little techniques so there's quite a lot of dry point which is where you just scratch straight onto the metal plate um, and also engraving where you more carefully jab into it. So it basically throws the kitchen sink at this image. And what it is, it's a view of Holland um, with a little mountain on one side, or a hill rather, with these three looming trees set against this thunderous sky. And a lot of the joy of this image is the way Rembrandt has used etching techniques to create this stormy atmosphere. So the trees feel as if the weather's getting to them. The skies are amazing with these threatening stormy clouds and things. And if you look really carefully, there's some action going on in, in the bushes at the bottom. There's a fisherman in one place. There's a pair of lovers in the other. But they're really, they're incidental. What really counts is this amazing evocation of a stormy hillside in Holland with trees on it, right? And of course, Holland is flat. You never see hills in Holland, do you? So I don't know where he imagined these particular trees, but they are so brilliantly done, don't you think? Yeah. The, the size of this hill is a mountain for Holland. Um, and it's crucial just in helping us elevate the perspective down onto the little town in the distance below, which is um, bracing itself for a, an Arwen-like storm, which is approaching from uh, the left-hand side. Oh, well, the, I, I could, and in fact, I have stared at this print. Um, for a long time. It's just, it's a feast, isn't it? I can see why you chose it. I absolutely love it. It is. Well, I, t I chose it for two reasons. One, because, as you said, the Arwen-like storm made me think of you. I know how sad you were with the loss of your 60-odd trees, and I know how hard that can be for a man, particularly a farmer of your gravitas. <laughs> so that's one reason. Another reason, though, you know me, right, and my religiosity, okay? Uh -huh. I think... And this, this isn't just me. People have already suggested this. It's not just my idea. I think this could be a kind of covert crucifixion scene. Now, as we know, uh, in the crucifixion, Christ was uh, hung up on the cross between the, uh, the two criminals, the two bad guys. Um, and so most classic crucifixions will have the three crosses on the hill of Golgotha. Um, outlined against the sky, just like this. And of course, the crucifixion took place during an eclipse of the sun, so there was darkness all around. So 
Rembrandt has some form in doing secret um, secret religious scenes, doesn't he? He's got that mm -hmm. great carcass of an ox, which I think is accepted by everybody now to, to really be a sort of evocation of Christ on the cross. So I just put it to you that I think this could also be seen not just as an amazing view of some trees, but as a picture with ambitions to evoke this religious sense of, uh, of the crucifixion at Golgotha. Yeah, no, I like that idea. But can I put something back to you? I think actually mm. there's a little joke in here. Um, if you zoom in on the right-hand side, on the hill on the right, there's a little tiny wee figure. Can you see him? Oh, yes. Yeah? And he's got a hat on, and he's actually an artist. He's doing a, a wee sketch. And he is looking off to the right-hand side. So he is facing the light, uh, and he's got his back turned to the dramatic scene behind him. Now, I used to be a photographer, and one of the things they used to teach you uh, in photography school was uh, the importance of turning around and looking behind you, because quite often, you know, you see a lovely sunset or whatever, you think, oh, God, take a photograph of that. Um, and actually, the drama is all behind you, so always um, look behind. And I think Rembrandt is having a little joke here, perhaps a rival or, or an amateur artist uh, who sat here on the hill who thinks that the, the drama is in the sunset when actually um, the real story, the picture, it's behind you. And that's good for panto season, isn't it? God, you're so sophisticated. <laughs> that's, that's a lovely thing. Uh, listen, what I'm really happy about is we all agreed it's an amazing image. Um, incredibly expensive, by the way. I've had a few goes at trying to find one. Uh, a wonderful piece of Rembrandt. Let's, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on to something that um, you want to choose. Throw your tree into the, uh, into the pot, Bendor. Oh, I've gone for actually a, an artist who would have probably been inspired by this very print, and, and a British artist, Thomas Gainsborough. And this painting is Cornard Wood. Uh, it's in the National Gallery. It's, a, it's quite a large picture, uh, painted in 1748 when Thomas Gainsborough was, was a young man. And um, what we can see, quite unusually actually, is that um, almost slap bang in the centre of the composition is uh, a sort of turning autumnal tree. And then we have uh, wood on either side of it. Um, on the left-hand side of this central tree, there's a little road winding away into the distance with trees again. And on the right-hand side, there's a little uh, pond or a mill pond, I think, with, with trees around it. So um, it, it's quite unconventional. It's quite sort of amateurish and naive, this picture, uh, as you might expect from, from a young artist who's, who's exploring his craft. Um, but I just, I just love the way, unashamedly, the trees are the star of this painting. Uh, a lot of landscape artists uh, m attempted to make um, the trees incidental, but here Gainsborough has chanced upon a lovely tree and decided to, to, to glorify it. Um, and that gives us a little glimpse into how young Gainsborough um, became the magical artist that he was, because he grew up in Sudbury in Suffolk. Um, and he used to, he was so captivated by trees and, and the surrounding landscapes that he used to play truant off school. And he would forge a note in his uh, father's handwriting saying to his teacher, give Tom a holiday. And then he, off he would go and find a lovely tree like this one here and do sketches of it until he said that there was barely a tree or a bush in the, in the neighbourhood which he didn't have in his mind's eye because he'd painted every, he'd drawn every single one. Um, and so I thought it's a lovely picture to look at, but it also um, it shows how um, beautiful trees gave birth to this wonderful British artist, Thomas Gainsborough. Absolutely gorgeous. Of course, Gainsborough's landscapes are amazing. Um, he was influenced mightily by the Dutch school, wasn't he? Particularly Roysdale, I think. Mm -hmm. But what the Dutch don't have and, the, and Britain does have is these sorts of places, this wonderful woody glade with the hills and dappled oaks and all that. 
Um, it just a quintessentially English slab of landscape, isn't it? And in Gainsborough, Britain found an artist who could really catch it, transport it, and give you that amazingly clear sense of it. I mean, long before Constable, Gainsborough was doing this, and I think it's been underestimated his his potency as a as a landscape artist, um, because we always love his portraits go on and on about the portraits. But this is wonderful. It's such a tangible sense. Now I go um mushroom picking in the autumn. I love going mushroom picking, right? It's a Polish thing to do, the bendy. Mm-hmm. Um and, and and you go mushroom picking by getting lost in places like this. You know, you wander about underneath these trees and you get this real sense of I don't know, sort of snuffling about at the bottom of the tree lines. And um, it's, it's, I just feel it all. When I look at Gainsborough, I just get a sense immediately of the British countryside. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture and a good choice. Thank you. And also, but later on, Gainsborough is known for sort of uh, uh, creating these imaginary landscapes. So the, the famous story is that he would sit in his studio at night when he was so bored of painting faces all day and create candlelit scenes with sort of uh, apparently sprigs of broccoli for trees. But but this, his early stuff, and this is an early work, is uh, so, I love the way you say it's it's so tangible because it is, this is an actual spot. Um, you can go to Cornard Wood uh, and stand uh, and see, I'm not sure this tree still survives, but you can see uh, the pond and the little winding track. And do you see on the left there, Wildy, there's a little sort of cut into the bank where um, uh, a young lad is chatting to a, a young lass with his shovel. Yeah. Can you see that? Oh, there he is, yes. Yeah. So that's um, that's uh, someone digging a wagon wash where you would, you would reverse your wagon into um, that little watery pit and wash the wheels. And that's, oh. still, that's still there on oh. that little track. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And it just shows you how the fact that this picture sort of glows with a sense of the truth, how that isn't a deception, that, that, that it really is, as it were, yeah. what was yeah. there. Fantastic. Yeah. Just, you know, on the bigger subject of trees, I mean, obviously we've got other ones to go to, but, but it, I mean, trees are amazing things, aren't they? I don't know about you, but every now and then, you know, you, you just come across a tree and you can't help but look at it for longer than you normally would. There's just mm. something amazing about it. Um, and they are sometimes sort of stand-ins for human beings, aren't they? Because they look old and gnarled and as if they've withstood mm. all the elements. Mm. Of course, if you look back in time, I mean, back through, from, I mean, I did a big series on the Dark Ages and on the Vikings. And for, for the Vikings, trees were enormously important. And Taya will know all about this. She's Norwegian. She'll know all about this. The Vikings were enormously obsessed with the whole idea. And you know why? They had this big famous tree called Idrasil, didn't they? It appears in all the sagas. And, and the thing about it is that trees link the earth to the sky, Bendor. Now, if you're someone 2,000 years ago who believes in kind of pagan ideas of how the world was made, when you're looking up at the sky and that's a miracle going on up there, and you're down here on the earth, you haven't got many things that connect you from your world to the divine world up there. And I think that that sense of trees being somehow this connection between the different worlds remains with us even today in a very banal and, and cut down form but i think we've still got a bit of a sense of that haven't we yeah and of course they assume an even more, a greater importance these days in that role uh, in terms of sucking all the carbon out of the atmosphere and helping us save the planet it couldn't save the planet more could we yes mm-hmm. okay, i'm going to move on so i'm going to bring hieronymus bosch into this who i think was a great painter of trees and i'm going to bring the garden of earthly delights in particular um i'm not going to talk about the whole picture because well first of all we've done it on this podcast before um, but also there's too much to talk about i'm going to talk about the left hand panel uh-huh. now on the left hand panel basically 
it's a view of paradise, right? Yeah. And we see Adam and Eve um, about to be chucked out of paradise for the sin of plucking a fruit from the tree of knowledge. That's the thing about the garden of paradise. Um, Eve wasn't supposed to pluck a fruit, but she did. And so we all got chucked out. And that led to this terrible thing that we have called life today uh, and eventually to hell. Okay. <laughs> so there's all that going on in the other two bits of the triptych. Uh -huh. But but see, what I like here, and this is so boshy, so brilliant. Look at the tree. Right? This is the tree on the left that is supposed to be the tree of knowledge. So in every other painting you've ever seen of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the tree will be a kind of recognizable fruit tree of some sort, an apple tree, sometimes an orange tree. But Bosch, Bosch has created this thing, right? This funny tree, which looks to me initially like a yucca plant, right? And when I did this film about Bosch, I thought, oh, I'm going to have this sequence where I carry a yucca plant around in order to point to this, right? <laughs> and then I looked more closely and I found that it, it isn't a, a yucca. It looks like a yucca, but it's not a yucca. Do you know what it is? Uh, I think it's a terrible tree. Well, it looks to me like a cat's scratching post you get in a pet shop. <laughs> yes, but that's not a technical term, and it's not a, <laughs> it's not a, a, botan a botanical term. It is not catch, cat scratching tree. It is actually Draconia Draco, or Dracania Draco, um, which is the dragon's blood tree found originally in the Canary Islands. Now, this took a lot of research by me, by the way, to, to find out what this tree was. Is this an art history first? Is this a wildy breakthrough? I think it may well be, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, um, if, if anyone's listening, they can um, they can always credit me with this. Give, give that uh, man a footnote. This tree was sort of rare, rare-ish, but it was it was, was pushed around in, in Bosch's time um, from sort of North Africa, Morocco, the Canary Islands. People knew about it. And the thing is, how did it get its name, the Dragon's Blood Tree? It got its name, the Dragon Blood Tree, because if you cut it, you get this red juice coming out, just like the blood of a dragon or any other blood for that matter. So it became a sort of mm -hmm. symbolic tree and was worshipped as such by the first inhabitants of, of the Canary Islands and, and, and the um, Moroccan coast. So um, it was both a tree that pagans worshipped um, and therefore a rather naughty tree. And then of course this weirdly symbolic tree because when you cut it, blood came out. So for, for his own sort of reasons, but for also these slightly larger reasons, Bosch uh, puts, puts it into the garden of paradise and has Adam and Eve sitting underneath it and they're about to pluck its fruit, right? So the tree of knowledge in, in the Bosch is this weird dragon blood tree from the Canary Islands. That has to be amazing, doesn't it? That is amazing. But you know what, Waldi? You just said so. I hesitate to pull you up on any uh, matter of religion or indeed any matter of Bosch because I don't think they're about to pluck the fruit. I think the, the fruit has already been plucked. And what we see here um, is uh, Eve with her hand out being admonished by God or, or Christ as he's depicted here. Uh, and he looks, he's, it's, it's when you were at school and you did something wrong and you were about to get a little whack on the fingers with a ruler. That's what he's doing here. And Eve is looking quite sorry for herself. Adam, on the other hand, is sitting back very nonchalantly saying it wasn't me, nothing to do with me, Gov. Um, and that's the scene here. So I think we've moved on in the story a bit. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons I don't like this painting at all. But but that, that's that's oh. uh, that's a separate thing. But it is a remarkable tree, isn't it? It's a remarkable tree yes. in a sad picture. Of all the stories of the Old Testament that explains so much of what, what's wrong today, uh, that first one, the, the you know, the, the idea of the original sin when when really um 
<laughs> it's just such a ridiculous story, isn't it? it I mean, is. is your wife as keen on you having your five fruit and veg a day as mine is? Um, yes, but that does not make her a temptress. Um, no, but that's and, all that was going besides... on. You know, Eve was just wanting to make sure that uh, Adam got all his vitamins. And then suddenly God comes along and says, there's, you know, a terrible thing and out, out you go. Bendor, I think we've got um, far too large a discussion ahead of us on the meaning of the Garden of Eden and whether the Bible is right or wrong about it. Back to the let's put that aside questions. for one minute. Let, let's park that big question of yours there. Um, let's agree at least that it's a fascinating tree by Bosch. And let's move on to another tree. Um, this one, well, you've got another one lined up. What's your next tree? Come on. I'm going to a cartoon by James Gilray. Um done in 1797 so i'm i'm heading towards uh politics but don't worry wildy I'm, I'm i know you always get slightly scared when i go into politics i'm not going to say anything about um our half-wit prime minister at the moment no we're going back to the uh the late 18th century and what we see here is the tree of liberty uh, and this uh we have a dead tree um and it's got a serpent around it so it's actually um, has echoes of our Garden of the Earthly Delights story. We have a, a dead tree, and the serpent has the head of the great Whig liberal politician of the time, Charles James Fox. And he is holding out an apple, a rotten apple, which is marked reform. He's holding that out to uh, a character of John Bull, so, that, so that's a representation of Britain itself. And across the rest of the tree, we have other rotten apples, uh, they are marked things like uh, atheism, treason, murder, revolution, age of reason. And um, the most significant clue in the center of the picture is a red cap, one of those Phrygian caps that uh, revolutionaries in France used to wear. And that's marked Liberté, and it has a tricolor on it. And behind, we have a, a different tree, a, a much more vibrant and healthy tree the tree of justice it's an oak tree because it's got a crown in the middle and that symbolizes the established order of of british constitution um and so so what we have here this 1797 um we're obviously we're in the shadow of the french revolution and uh, gilray is saying to britain don't fall for the temptations of reformists like charles james fox because what happens everything goes rotten we'll be chucked out of paradise and we'll end up like the french who've been busy chopping off everyone's heads <laughs> Oh dear! I'm, I'm glad you told me all that because um, it is. There's a lot going on in this picture, uh, and I, I had trouble. I have to admit, not having your sort of deep historical uh, basis and, and and background knowledge, working out exactly what's happening. Of course, every little bit of this is significant, isn't it? I do like the snake, which is clearly meant to be Satan in the Garden of Eden, um, with um, with with. Uh, you say it was Fox's head. Charles James Fox, yeah. Yeah, with, with with Fox's head, um, and he's saying to uh, to John Bull, representing Britain, of course, nice apple, Johnny, <laughs> nice apple. So he's trying to tempt him. Uh, this this rather unconvincing John Fox uh, with the apple. It's hilarious, um, and it just goes to show that uh, the whole image of the Garden of Eden, which you have so poo pooey about a minute ago, um, has lots of legs in it as a as a place to go to if you want to make snide comments about politics, if you want to do this and that. It's a very, very fertile bit of imaginative territory. But also the importance of trees in our sort of daily discourse. So, so back in the late 18th century, in the French Revolution, when the revolutionaries came along and chopped everybody's heads off and liberated a town or a country or a village, they would plant a tree of liberty and have a little dance around it. Um, and um, in the American Revolution too, 
they had the concept of the tree of liberty because one of the first acts of sedition against King George III was a protest under a big elm tree in Boston. So uh, trees, you, you mentioned earlier how important they are from a religious point of view, and, and I said about helping to save the planet, but uh, they have great historical and political significance as well. So they, they are gifts that keep on giving, Well, They are, they are. And I'm going to move on to um, the last of our shortlisted tree gifts, our arboreal gifts, um, and that is uh, this fantastic painting, um, which I've just seen actually last week, only last week, at the National Gallery um, uh, by an artist called Kahinda Wiley. Now, Kahinda Wiley may be known to you because he is the black artist who painted the portrait, the official portrait of Barack Obama. So a couple of years ago, this, they unveiled this official portrait of Barack Obama by a black artist, Kahinda Wiley. And I wasn't that keen on this Barack Obama because he seemed to be sort of sitting in the middle of a hedge, slightly unconvincingly. But he's got this show at the National Gallery, which has just opened. It's on for quite a while yet. And so I really recommend everyone goes to see it. Uh, covid allowing of course and it's all about his response to the old masters so um, it's kahinda wiley who's this contemporary black artist with lots of ideas about identity etc looking at the old masters and reworking them and in particular he's looking at romantic landscapes so there's quite a few pictures that are a take on friedrich um, and the whole idea of these sort of, you know, Friedrich could have been an artist, couldn't he? Caspar David Friedrich with his symbolic trees on hills. But Wiley takes them and makes something different of them. And what he's doing really is reclaiming old master territory for a contemporary black artist. And this particular image that I've got here for you, Bendor, it's a bunch of people in a boat, right, in the sea. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the boat is a huge tree, a sort of unexpected tree sticking up out of the boat and various uh, shouting and screamings going on and people are overboard and it's all rather frightening and it looks a bit like a shipwreck scene, except for this, this curious thing of a tree growing where the mast should be uh, on the mm -hmm. boat. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a version of a Hieronymus Bosch painting called The Ship of Fools. Oh. And in the Bosch... The idea of the image is that all these fools, you know, the whole idea of the ship of fools, it's basically a sort of a, an allegory of humanity, isn't it? That we all get on a boat and we're all stupid. We don't know anything. Um, we can't actually sail a boat, but that doesn't stop us going out on it and essentially drowning and killing ourselves. So the original idea of the Bosch and the whole idea of the ship of fools is that everybody thinks they know everything. You know, they don't listen to experts. They don't care if someone else is better qualified than them. They all think they can do what they want and get on any boat they want and sail happily through. So it's a very negative image of the people in the boat, in the Bosch. But what Wiley, what Kahinda Wiley's done is sort of turn that round. By making the crew a black crew and this oak tree or whatever it is growing up at the middle, for me, he's sort of switched the polarity of the image. And instead of it being an image about a ship of fools who don't know what they're doing, it's become a sort of image of, for example, refugees fleeing desperately from somewhere, trying to get somewhere else. Um, or, or and inevitably, you know, you hear echoes of the sort of slap, slap, slap of the slave ships going across the Atlantic. A different kind of meaning begins to emerge here. Instead of a picture that takes the, the mickey out of, out of humanity, it's one that seems to me to suddenly evoke these other big, brave ideas. And um, I just think it was such a fantastic thing to do. And I should also add, his technique is astonishing. He's a photorealist painter. But the, 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 the level of detail and degree he gets in his photorealism is, is mesmerizing. So a fantastic 
painting, I think, full of these new types of meanings. Brilliant show at the National Gallery. Mm. Actually, I was in the National Gallery when they had the press preview um, and I wanted to go and see the pictures and I thought, well, shall I try and blag my way in? But I, I got a bit scared and ran away. So uh, I have not yet seen this, only through the photo you sent me. And I think it's a, uh, it's a fantastic picture. Some people have been uh, harumphing about the National Gallery doing uh, contemporary art shows. And I think this is a, a, a really quite refreshing thing because how few painters out there uh, are trying uh, consciously, like Hinder Wiley is, to um, channel the old masters in their contemporary artworks. And in the past, there was a slight sense the National Gallery, places like the National Gallery, you know, the drawbridge came up. And if you wanted to be, if you were a contemporary artist, well, you, you go to Tate Modern or something and, and do squiggles and squares there. But I think it's quite nice that the National Gallery is now um, bringing the contemporary in. And hopefully uh, more bridges like this can be built uh, between arts over the centuries. Yeah, I think it depends on the artist. It can be very, very bad. But in this case, it's very, very good. Anyway, listen, so we've got through our five shortlisted trees. I think it's time now to write down our scores, um, pass them over to our mathematician, Taya, at the other end, and just see which one do we think is the best of the trees. Okay, Taya, you're the um, mathematical genius here. So what are the scores? Start with the worst tree and end up with the best. The worst tree uh, with four points is the Bosch. What? What? Ridiculous. Go on. You say what, but we all gave it low scores, yeah. <laughs> including uh, you. Mm. The uh, next one with six points is the Tree of Liberty, James Guillory. Uh, not a great work of art, mm. I must concede. Guillory better than Bosch. <laughs> anyway, yes. And the next one with ten points is the Wiley, Ship of Fools. Good, that's a decent score for Hinder Wiley, yeah. And then with 12 points, we have Gainsborough with Cornered Wood. Very good. Yes, oh, I, I'm a great Gainsborough fan. Good. Commendable second place. Which leaves us with 13 points, the winner, Rembrandt. Wow. Three yeah. truths. You can't argue with that, can you? It's such a great image. I'm glad we united at least in, in our appreciation of that. So there it is. It's official uh, on Bendel Grosvenor's farm moment. Um, the best tree in art is is the tree in uh, in Rembrandt's Three Trees. Yeah. Um, fantastic etching. Good. Well, that's great. That's given me an idea, actually, Weld. Um, when we come to replant our trees here, I think we might try and um, find a spot to to recreate the Rembrandt there. We'll have a little. We'll have a little hill of Golgotha with three Rembrandt trees on it. How about that? That's a beautiful idea. And I'll come along and I'll be the little bloke at the front uh, <laughs> doing the fishing in the in the stream. Oh, it's a great idea. Let's do that. Anyway, Bendor, time to move on. Um, not because I want to, uh, but because the calendar, the calendar demands it. Bendy, three hundred and twenty-four years ago, exactly, something momentous happened in art. And when something momentous happens in art 324 years ago, it's our job to notice it. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. Ah, yes, it's dodgy anniversary time. We do it because the art world loves dodgy anniversaries, doesn't it? Any, any excuse for putting on a show. But anyway, back in 1697, on the 10th of November, Guess who was born, Bendy? Guess who was born in Bartholomew Close in London? Who? Oh, tricky one, this. Uh, a while ago. Was it William Hogarth? 
It was, oh. funnily enough, William Hogarth. And actually, I know Bartholomew Close. It's kind of, um, it's sort of on the way to the Barbican, isn't it? Between the Barbican and Smithfield. Um, I guess it was a pretty poor area in those times. Anyway, we're going to do Hogarth, for, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, because it's his 324th anniversary of his birth, and that's a great dodgy anniversary. But also because there's this show on at the moment um, in Tate Britain, which has caused... An enormous rumpus, hasn't it? Um, I mean, we've all waded in, I think, and I certainly enjoyed uh, putting the boot into it. Not so much for the paintings in the show, but for the ludicrous uh, paperwork that went with it, the captions, the catalogue. The extraordinary misleading uh, attempt, I think, to to understand Hogarth in the wrong ways. Um, I don't know, did you, did you catch up with that show at all, Bendy? Oh, I went to see it because I heard of all the hoo-ha and I thought we'd better have a look at this. In fact, before I went to see it, well, I was um, rung up by Daily Telegraph um, after the press preview and, and the murmurings had started about the, the, the terrible woke captions. And I got the sense that the paper was looking to me as a famous reactionary old curmudgeon of the art world to, to stick the boot in for the woke captions. But the funny thing is, well, I'm Captain Woke. I, you know, I quite like all this stuff. I quite like this reassessment of, um, hmm. of British art history. And we do need to, there are so many areas where we really need a, a fresh assessment. So, so I said, and, and I was quoted in the paper saying, hurrah for the Tate for doing this. I think it's it's good to reassess our so this traditional. Before you views. saw it, this was before I saw it. Okay, um, and then I went to see it, and I think I think it has gone a, a smidgen too far. Look, listen, I have nothing against good causes and a reevaluation of important things in art. Um, I don't like the word woke. You know, it has it has this rather ghastly connotations now. You know, if it's right to challenge an old standing image of something, then let's challenge it. The trouble with this show is that it just, it's drivel. I mean, what, what they've replaced facts and interesting things with is is drivel. You know, this whole idea that, that anybody can blabber what they want and that because they are somebody, that's enough. That's all it takes. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be an expert. You're just somebody whose blather is, is worth putting on the side of a picture because what? Because of what? Because we all live in a social media world where everybody's opinions are equal. I don't know what it is. But for me, it was absolutely disastrous thing to do because you've got this fantastic exhibition full of great art ruined really by the lack of meaningful information in, in all the writing about it. So I was annoyed by it. and I, I certainly had a good go at it in my article in the Sunday Times. Well, I thought the, the approach that you and I uh, take issue with was exemplified by one part of the exhibition where they had a Hogarth series of um, The Rake's Progress which is one of the seminal series of, in British art, wonderful pictures uh, charting the descent of this uh, uh, posh rake into um, sin and squalor. And there's only one label next to the paintings. And it's, uh, I think it's for the second or third of the series, where it points out that uh, one of the figures in the background is a, is a black woman, and it, it charts the history of of, of what um, that is saying about the picture. Now, I think that's fantastic. I thought that was really interesting. The point it made um, about contemporary attitudes towards race and racism and the jokes that were made at the time at the expense of black people, I thought that was really valid. My point was, I also wanted labels for the other paintings so that I could learn about, you know, what I expect to learn in an exhibition about anyone, uh, even Hogarth. You know, I want I want the whole thing. I don't want that just to be the the only focus. And I thought that was that was where it went a little bit. Well, the thing far. is, look, Hogarth, particularly his paintings in series, so the Rake's Progress, the Harlot's Progress, they are so packed with detail. These images that if you don't know what's going on in them, um, they 
just don't make sense or that they don't make enough sense. You're certainly not understanding them properly. But what you have to do with a Hogarth show is use the captions to take us back into 18th century thinking uh, and tell us specifically what all this stuff that's going on in his busy, busy, busy pictures, mm. what it all means. And then we can make up our minds about whether that's right or it's wrong. But you cannot look at that work without having lots of other background information given to you. And when you waste the captions, basically, by not giving you any of that, treating it as an excuse to put all this other stuff in, you know, it's just really annoying. But there is no artist who demands information in a way, background information, uh, quite as, as as forcefully, I think, as Hogarth. Yeah. Anyway, what are we doing about it? Well, I just thought at the end of this show, which I actually, I love to see, I thought, you know, post-COVID, to, or sorry, mid-COVID, as we should say now, to assemble uh, 60 works like this, a fantastic array of 60 uh, Hogarth paintings and other examples. Really, really good stuff. Really impressive. Really enjoyed it. I just came out thinking um, that Hogarth had been done down a bit uh, because all of these things have to be done. All these accusations have to be made with a sense of fairness, I think. And I just got the sense that Hogarth had been rather unfairly tarnished. So in order to try and um, hear, well, on the podcast, to mount... Uh, a case for the defence. I spoke to uh, Professor Robin Simon, who is the editor of the British Art Journal, um, a, a scholar of many areas of British art history, especially the 18th century, and who has written a book called uh, Hogarth and France. And of course, the, the official title of the exhibition, which slightly got lost in, in Tate's captions, was uh, Hogarth and Europe. So uh, I began by asking Robin Simon what Hogarth himself would have made of the exhibition? I think he would probably have stamped his foot several times and sworn violently. He's known to have been rather like that. He was very small, about five foot one, or well, he claimed about five foot one, he's probably about four feet 11 high. And like so many small people, he had an outsized personality and a temper to match. So I, I can't think he'd have come out of that very calmly. Okay, was he, he was quite sensitive, wasn't he? Uh, very sensitive. He was touchy to a fault, but he had a great capacity for friendship. And I think one should not uh, underestimate that. I think he was much loved. In one respect, the, the exhibition was, uh, I really enjoyed it for the sheer range and quality of Hogarth's pictures on display. So he would have loved to have seen so many works being celebrated, surely. What, what do you think he would have made of those um, seemingly often quite repetitious labels which sort of ended up by saying here's a lovely painting but uh, wasn't he a, a terrible racist stroke um, misogynist stroke anti-semite i think he would have gone back to the studio and created some absolutely vicious satires <laughs> and made tremendous fun of them and, and and knocked them into the into a cocked hat there are instances of these things in his art um do you think uh, for example the the anti-semitism that appears in uh, the harlot's progress, in, particularly in plate two, when our heroine uh, stroke harlot is the mistress of of an obviously Jewish person, given sort of stereotypical features like a large nose. Do you think he's being a little bit unfairly maligned in the show for being an anti-Semite, or is he is he using uh, contemporary anti-Semitism to make a wider point about? I don't know. There's been various claims about whether he was trying to make points about the New Testament and the Old Testament and so on. I don't really think anti-Semitism comes into that picture. I find it hard to interpret it in that sense. I do appreciate that it can be read as reflecting contemporary prejudice, but Hogarth was very free of prejudice in himself. 
as we know from countless instances. He was an extraordinary, he was a great opportunist. Uh, so philanthropy in Hogarth's case was much mixed with opportunism, but he was a great philanthropist. To take only one example, he was, uh, he was ferociously hardworking, uh, but he got involved in the establishment of the founding hospital, uh, which looked after abandoned children who were looked down, despised by society. And Hogarth was deeply involved. On the one hand, he saw it as a chance to create the first showcase for British art, the first public exhibitions of British art. But at the same time, he and his wife, who were childless, acted as inspectors of wet nurses for the whole of the West of London. So they went round. How he found, found the time to do this, I shall never know. But he was actively involved. He wasn't somebody who just shouted, I'm doing good. He did good. I mean, it's worth pointing out that at the time when Hogarth was doing this, there was absolutely no uh, social safety net for society. None at all. And, and London in the um, early to middle of the 18th century was as rough and as grim as it could possibly come. Yeah, absolutely. And now to take another example, uh, Hogarth's life is a series of firsts, really. He's the first artist to show sympathy for, in the case of cruelty to animals. He, sh he depicts the torture of, of an unfortunate cat and also of a dog uh, with immense sympathy. Uh, and he has, it's mixed with sympathy for the unfortunate victims of social injustice, of deprivation, alcoholism, one thinks of Gin Street and, and uh, Gin Lane and Beer Street. There is this wide range of sympathy, of penetrating imaginative sympathy for, if, if you like, the underdog. So I felt that the whole weight of commentary in the show was unbalanced uh, against Hogarth, whereas it's so easy to make a case in, in revealing what a remarkable man he was. What the show lacked was any useful commentary on, on all the pictures. It was selective uh, and really terribly unhelpful. But on the other hand, I would like to say in the show's favour that it's the most stunning array of Hogarth paintings that I have seen in my lifetime. It's just absolutely wonderful. Mm. And so I, I'm quite happy to ignore all the commentary, all the lacunae, all the nonsense, just to see 60 wonderful paintings by Hogarth in one place. Some of them you never get a chance to see, very rarely. Mary Edwards, Southwark Fair, I could go on and on and on. Just fantastic. Yeah. Can we talk about his portraits? Because one of the last rooms in the exhibition assembles some yeah. Absolutely knockout portraits yeah. by Hogarth. Um, and, and they're so quintessentially British, aren't they? I mean, my, my co-host, Waldemar, in the podcast is slightly obsessed with William Dobson. And one of the things he loves about Dobson's portraits is their quintessentially Britishness, especially in the way they characterise his sitters. I mean, a picture by Hogarth, for example, of Mrs. Salter, um, Elizabeth Secker, which was painted in 1741 and it is in the Tate collection. Um, I mean, she's so, she's so ruddy. And, and charming, and so the opposite of anything you would see in France or Holland at the time. Uh, up to point, Lord Copper, uh, I think that the whole basis of Hogarth's brilliance as a painter is founded on a profound understanding of contemporary French and indeed old, older French painting. Uh, and that, it's interesting you should mention, Mrs. Salter, if you look at that picture carefully, one thing will eventually strike you that it's painted almost entirely in mid-tones. There are no, there's no chiaroscuro, no dramatic contrast between light and shade. It's all done with colour. Yeah. 
so that you get complementary colors of pinks and greens, but not reds and greens, but pinks and greens, these subtle uh, opposing colors that work as light and shade uh, to model the figure. Now that's something he got from French Rococo painters. Nobody else would understand that. Uh, but I do like the comparison with, with Dobson, that lovely, um, almost bluff, confrontational uh, portraiture that you see in George Arnold. That's a wonderful picture of a man defying all the rules of deportment, clutching his hat firmly in two hands, with, with, um, looking towards you with his with sort of man spread, as it were. Why didn't they pick that up? Uh, uh, but that lovely kind of abandonment, uh, disregard for the rules of polite deportment, which ruled all of 18th century society, that's, that's very, that's very Hogarth and very British. Mm. So the, the palette in a portrait like that, then, if it's, if it's all midtones, is that, is that something he would have picked up particularly from French past lists? Yes. I'm, I'm thinking of people like Latour. Ah, well, he knew Latour. Oh. And now, if I can take this, the, the, the title of this show, Hogarth in Europe, well, can I put it like this? They had an open goal and they hoofed it into the stands. It, to me, it showed nothing about Hogarth in Europe, and yet there's so much to say. How could they ignore the fact that he personally knew Latour, and you're absolutely right. Of course, he looked at uh, Latour's pastels. He'd seen them in Latour's studio. He went there. He knew Chardin. He went to Chardin's studio. A lot of the problems with Hogarth are Hogarth's own fault because he fooled us all into thinking that he was anti-French, uh, you know, the quintessential Brexiteer. Well, uh, not a bit of it. He's the first British artist to engage with European painters personally. He went to Paris in 1743 with the first canvas of marriage à la mode under his arm in order to recruit six French engravers. As a result, he came to know Chardin, Latour, the great engraver, Jacques-Philippe Lebas, uh, and he worked by my count with some 15 French artists in close collaboration throughout his career. Now, at the same time, he did go around Paris, again, stamping his foot, and shouting, their houses are all guilt and this shit, which of course <laughs> didn't endear him to the French or to his British listeners who were rather shocked. But that's just a kind of persona that he adopted. His, he had this profound understanding and sympathy for French art. The, his most violent attack on the French is Calais Gate or the roast beef of old England. But if you look in the bottom left-hand corner, what do you see? You see a very large piece of fish. Yeah. It's a skate or a ray, as people now call it. And why? He knew that when the print was published, Chardin would see the engraving. And so he put in a little act of homage to Chardin in the form of Chardin's most famous still life, the skate or the ray, which he'd just seen in Chardin's studio on his visit to Paris in 1748, before he was so uh, abruptly arrested at Calais on his way home, which made him so cross. Yes, and which he depicts uh, rather uh, touchingly in that painting. Um, so, uh, so our sort of, uh, or I should say, my uh, preconception that Hogarth would have voted for Brexit is entirely wrong, is it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he had the he had the most extraordinary sympathy and understanding for French uh, artists and art and painting, particularly. You you, you mentioned the, the wonderful portraits, Mary Edwards, for example. It must be one of the greatest portraits ever made. That could never have been painted without, oh, or Mr. and Mrs. Garrick. Wow, um, that's two of the greatest portraits ever made. And both of them entirely 
as a result of his first-hand experience of French portraiture. Yeah, I see. Can I just tell you some other juicy European connections? Okay, yes. Hogarth is Simony first, the first great British artist to write an aesthetic treatise, The Analysis of Beauty. Mm -hmm. Well, what did he do? He ensured that while his analysis of beauty was going through the press in London, it was simultaneously being translated into German. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it appeared in, in Germany precisely uh, three months after it appeared in London. It just reveals how extraordinarily open he was, not just to France, but to Germany and beyond. Uh, the analysis of beauty was translated into Italian in 1761. Mm -hmm. he, he's, he's the only British artist really, still, who enjoys a truly global reputation. Yeah, because uh, the history of British art up to that point, and for much afterwards, is basically yeah. one of, of Britain hoovering up, being dependent on everything from Europe over the channel. And Hogarth yeah. is the first time it goes back in the other direction. Absolutely. He's the first art, British artist to export his own works of art to Europe, yeah. accompanied, of course, by French commentaries. <laughs> That's okay. how French he was. Which brings me on finally on to one what I think is one of the great tragedies of Hogarth is that uh, why, why doesn't Hogarthian uh, last in British art in the context of of what we might call high British art, high painting? I mean, Hogarthian endures in prints and cartoons and a whole uh, you know genre of satire and the way we look at the world, but. But not in painting. I mean, if if you consider the Royal Academy just twenty years later in the seventeen eighties and seventeen as it you know as it becomes the shop window for British art in the world, they do turn away from anything that's vaguely amusing. Or I mean, it's all become terribly serious, doesn't it? Why is that? I think it's all the fault of Joshua Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> he owed so much to Hogarth in his own painting, uh, and yet he absolutely refused to acknowledge it and just rather sneered at, at, at Hogarth in his famous lectures at the Royal Academy. I think the whole problem does lie with Reynolds, actually, yeah. Lovely painter, but perhaps not much of a sense of humour. None at all, as far as I could see. <laughs> oh, great. Well, Robin, thank you very much. That was fantastic. What a good interview, Ben Dean. Well, that was very informative. Um, what a what a clear-thinking man he was. Yes, I love Robin. Very fond of him. He's a, he's a great figure. I'll tell you what's interesting, though. I mean, he, obviously, because he's... You know, he's batting for Hogarth, isn't he? So he was very firm in his views that, that Hogarth would not have been a Brexit voter, that we've underestimated his, or rather, we've blackened his, his reputation as a regressive figure and a jingoist and all that. But I don't know if he, you know, I don't know, I think he went a little bit too far, Bendy. I mean, I, you know, looking at Hogarth's art, just feeling it as opposed to reading about it, feeling it, I mean, there is definitely a bit of Gilray in him isn't there and a bit of putting the boot into foreigners and I, I just I don't think you can wash that out for example that that bit about Shardam and the um the ray in the corner of of Calais Gate Robin presents it as a tribute to to the great Shardam and uh, the, Hogarth put this in to you know as, as a sort of you know, a, a tap of the cap to, to, to Shardam you know, the fish is being worshipped by three nuns in that corner there. You know, it's not just a, a ray or a skate. It's an object that's being sort of worshipped and sanctified in a way that you just know is taking the, the pee, you know. It, it, it's clearly mocking French religiosity. 
Um, and so however much I'd like to trust uh, Robin on, on his great defence of Hogarth, I think it's actually wrong to chuck out completely. The, um, the, you know, there's, a, there's a winkle picker in there that's taking a boot at, 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 the, um, at the foreigners as well, I'm sure. Well, I think Robin's point is, and, and I would agree with it, is that um, Hogarth took his winkle picker to everybody. Everything and everyone. He just wanted to smash the place up. I think I don't know if he would have been a Brexiter or Remain. I think he probably would have been a Leninist. I think you know he wanted to tear the whole place down and then see what was left and maybe try and rebuild it. Yeah, no, I like the fact that he's only four foot eleven as well. I mean, who knew that? I mean, he's half your size, Bendor. He's a... But we don't take our the view of three reactionary grumpy old men about about this Tate show at face value. We, I think we say it's a, it's a real treat, visual treat to go around. Maybe don't read all the labels, and I, and I would encourage everyone to go and see it. It is great, and the the portraits, as you so rightly stressed, are absolutely amazing, wonderful, and definitely comparable to the very best of William Dobson. So, um, uh, yes, a fantastic show for me, ruined by by the paperwork. But um, yes, if you forget your reading glasses and just look at the art, it, it survives, of course. Now, the two of us have been doing this podcast for a couple of years, right, Mendy? Uh, and because of the lockdowns and all that, we've been doing it mainly on Zoom. You know, we have a digital relationship uh, with you in Scotland and me in London. But last week, Mendy, in a little break in the COVID wars, we actually met in real life, flesh to flesh. You took me out on the town, didn't you? And luckily, the microphones were there to record it. When Waldy met Bendy. So Bendy, you brought me out here on this rainy Sunday to see some stuff in the uh, auction houses in London. What's going on this week that's so special? Well, it's the Old Master Week, Waldy, the December sales. This is the big event. And um, I just thought you might like to get to, uh, your wife a lovely Christmas present, perhaps a, a Caravaggio or something like that. Great, you're lending me some money. That's fantastic <laughs> news. <laughs> Anyway, you're saying this is a special week in the art yes, world. Yes, the Old Master sales in London are biannual. There's July and there's December. July tends to be the biggest and most exciting ones, but the December ones are useful for last-minute Christmas shopping. OK, so what have you got your eye on? Well, I thought we'd start at Bonhams, actually, which is at the top of Bond Street, and then we'll walk down to Sotheby's. There's a picture in here which is catalogued as English School, a portrait of a gent. But a number of people have asked me if it is by your man, William Dobson, and I thought it'd be nice to get your opinion. Ah, so in Bonhams there might be a potential Dobson for us to look at. A little Dobson sleeper. Let's go. Mm -hmm. So, Bendy, we're inside. Now, what, what is it we're going to look at and where is it? Well, on the left here, there's a picture Ooh. which, from a distance, looks quite Dobson-like, I have to say. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, it's a nice mix in here. Lots of porcelain as well, not just the paintings. Do you like porcelain? Leaves me a bit cold, you should. Oh no, no! Don't tell me that. Do we, stop! Stop a second! Stop a second! Look, there's a display case here full of cups and saucers. But this early porcelain, if you go early Meissen, early Sevres. It took me a while, I must say, because it, I think there's a British resistance to decorative arts. Mm -hmm. But when you start looking at, at them carefully, I mean, they're just wonderful, beautiful, gorgeous things. And, and one of the things that always amazes me about proper porcelain, which for me is like 18th century, right? Mm -hmm. It's so heavy because they used stuff that was dug up from the ground, proper clay, you know. Okay. 
and proper, proper ash put in it and all that. So these things, they look so fragile as if they'd melt in your mouth, don't they? But actually they're great big lumps of solid, solid stuff. I think my problem is I judge them by those things you find in airport gift shops. You know, they're still churning this kind of stuff out, aren't they? No, not, not in this quality, not in like this mice we're staring at now. And look at these, the, the fantastic chinoiseries. So one of these little mice and figurines, what's that going to set you back? Well, I don't know how much those will, but if that is an 18th century candler bit of mycin, I mean, you're talking minimum, what, four or five thousand, which is really? not too bad, is it? Like and of course, I know, it's got the little mycin cross on the back here. Yeah, the, the cross swords. Yes, there you go. It's two swords. That's yeah. Deal. yeah, they are, yeah. Well, they do. Bonhams are quite good on mycin. In fact, I've got one great piece of mycin, and it's a Turk riding a, riding a rhinoceros. Oh. Um, that resonate with you. But uh, let's put the mycin aside for a moment. So this is it, is it, Benji? I'm just staring across at this face looking at me. Yeah, it's a portrait. It's, uh, here we are, Lot 44, Flemish School, 17th century. And the label says, The Musician. And it used to have an attribution here to Jacob Jordans. Well, it's not by Jordans, is it? It's not Jordans at all, no. And a few people have said to me, is it by Dobson? And I, ca I can see why they've thought that, because just... From a distance, the characterisation is quite Dobson-like. It, it? it looks like one of his Civil War sitters. And it looks like a fellow who's, who's been down the inn and has had 15 gallons of mead the night before and has got lucky with the innkeeper's daughter. It's a sort of Dobson-y kind of picture. It is. But um, you're, you're the man, so have, have well, put your nose to the canvas and see, <laughs> tell, tell us what it is. Before I put my nose to the canvas, I'm just going to stay where I am, which is a couple of feet, three, four feet away from it. I can see why they say that, why people might have suggested Dobson, because it's a physiognomy thing, isn't it? You know, every painter, the way they do faces, there's just slight particular way they do it. Yes. And sometimes it's, it's the tell, isn't it? I mean, I know there's a, that great Venetian painter, Cima de Conigliano. Every time you see a Cima de Conigliano Madonna, you know it's him, because their faces are kind of wider than most Madonnas, and there's a certain look to the way their eyes go and their nose go. And Dobson had that thing, and, and this has got that too, that there is a Dobson-esque conglomeration of features here. Yeah. But, I mean, the format is very un-Dobson, just a single head like that. He usually did three-quarter heads. And the bigness of the face as well, unless it's cut out of something larger, is that possible? It might be cut could out be, of a larger picture. Be, yeah. It doesn't look right. And then, I'm going to get close now, because, of course, the big thing is the texture. Dobson always gave his pictures plenty of texture. And this is a bit too flat, I think. It is flat, isn't it? Yeah. It's painted by a different kind of artist, one in less of a hurry, yeah. and one with finer brushes. Yeah. But it's nice, it's quite like it. There's a lovely little touch around his neck. He's got a thread with his lace shirt and a love ring hanging from it. Mm. His conquest and that before. It's always Do you think a sort of slight look of a self-portrait about it? Well, that's... True. Someone, someone yeah, no, no, there is a slight look of a self-portrait about it, but not enough. But not Dobson. No, because... So the, the estimate's five to seven thousand. It, it, I bet you it'll fly a bit, because I think there's a bit of chat about it. Is there? It looks like what we call cheese in the trap in the art dealing world. It's a oh. sort of, you know, it's offered up for someone to nibble at, and then if they're not cheese careful... Cheese in the trap. Well, we'll see. So, so the, the deal here is that we're going to look around and see these things, Bendy, and then we're going to find out how much they fetch and reveal to our listeners. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, but well I think I think I'd like to take you down to Sotheby's down at Bond Street, where there's 
some bigger league stuff, Botticelli, more in your price range. <laughs> well, listen, the Dobson is just about on the top end of my price range. And before we leave this, just very quickly, so what, what are you going to say it's going to make? Uh, between 30 and 40,000. Really? Yeah. I was going to say 10, it seemed like a lot. Okay, 30 and 40 from you, 10 from me. Let's keep a list and see who wins this competition. Because sometimes, you know, you want to, if you've got a picture like that, you want to sell it at auction, it's sometimes better to put it into auction uncatalogued and let people get excited about what it might be than it is to put it in, you know, attributed to some mine and then sure. people won't pay attention to Yeah, that was the Sean Greenhouse approach. So whenever he put a forgery in somewhere, he'd pretend he had no clue about what it might be right. um, and allowed the people at, at Bonhams or Sotheby's or whoever to leap to the conclusion, you know, and it, 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 it enfranchised their opinions, didn't it? You yeah. always put a few noughts onto the price. Yeah. Anyway, that was rather interesting. Off okay. we go then to Sotheby's. Yes. So Bendy, you've taken me down the road, down New Bond Street, and we've come into Sotheby's, which um, several rungs up the ladder from Bonhams, isn't it? Judging by the amount of stuff they've got in here, and indeed what, what the quality of the work from what I've seen. Well, you mentioned the quality of it. As we struggle up the staircase, up to the first floor, where they have the, the real serious stuff for the evening sale, mm. in pride of place, where they put their most important lot, what they think is a really cracking picture, round to the left here, you'll see Good Lord. a pair of portraits by Sir Anthony Van Dyke, our old friend. Van Dyke, I knew it. You had to, it had to be Van Dyke. How exciting. Wow. And this is a pair painted when he was in Flanders. And the estimate is uh, four to six million pounds. Portrait of Jacob de Witt and portrait of Maria Nutius. Right. So they're two dark portraits, both done up in that strict Netherlandish black with um, big ruffs around their necks. I guess they're what they're married couple, are they? I think so, yes. Mm. This is a pair, marriage pair. So this would have been Van Dyke before he came to England. So his yeah. original identity as the son of Rubens, as it were. That's right. Yeah. Fantastic. So where, what's the history of these two then, Bendy? Well, they're not yours, are I they? No, they're, <laughs> no, they're not mine. <sighs> but uh, they're pictures I've long admired in the, in the Van Dyke books and never seen in the flesh. And I just, I think particularly the portrait of Jacob here is... Uh, is so fantastic. I mean, just the way his his head is turned at a sort of slightly unconventional angle. It's a real presence, isn't it? We could be about to have a conversation with him. It is, indeed. People listening to this podcast will be able to look it up, of course, on the on the web pages that we have uh, associated with it, and they'll be able to see that. But I'll tell you what I find attractive and interesting is his hair, because he's, he's going bald a bit. Um, and he's got rather sort of straggly, slightly greasy hair. A bit of a comb over there. Isn't he it? is yeah. a bit of a comb over, but it hasn't been painted out, as it were. It hasn't been glamorised. Mm. It's what's wonderful about, you know, people always go on about Van Dyke being an out-and-out flatterer, which of course he was. But he, he had a relationship to the truth, didn't he? I mean, which is, yeah. you know, he had a truth, truth to textures, let's put it that way. Yeah. So the little straggly moustache and chin, beard, you know, the hair. Those are pretty good. And the cloth, the outfit. The, the hand, the hand is fantastic. Yes. I always feel it's a bit unfair people saying Van Dyke was a flatterer. He, 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 of course he could flatter people. But mm. there is a, there's a record of, of some old countess, I've forgotten her name now, who sent a picture back to him because she said uh, he made me look so fat like I was puffing the winds out of my cheek. 
<laughs> so, you know, he, d he didn't always flatter. But that's rare, isn't it? That, I mean, that's the classic rare. example of Van Dyke flattery is what he did to Charles I. Yes, and then Maria. And then Maria, Maria yes. Yeah. So he was, Charles I was short, stunted, famously sort of ugly and untogether, and yet he looks like this brilliant king, yes. doesn't he, astride his giant steed. And we're told that Henrietta and Maria, his wife, had teeth protruding from her mouth like guns from a fort. <laughs> but you never see them in No, you don't. That's right. It was the Venetian ambassador, yeah. wasn't it, who pointed that out. So yeah. who knows what these two that we're looking at could well, really I look think, like? I think they could, uh, they'll probably make their money. Four, you know, that's a lot of money, isn't it, for a pair of pictures, four to six million, but they'll probably make it. It's Because you don't often get a pair. The woman's rather beautiful, of course. She's, very, she's, she's a bit more piano than, than the man, don't you think? Mm. It, I just don't, I feel like Van Dyke hasn't quite got to, to grips with the personality here. That's certainly true. The man has more of a individual presence. Yeah. But she's got some nice symbolism about her. She's holding, what is it, bay leaves or something? That'll be something meaningful, won't it? Yeah. And I like her jewellery. She's got a pearl necklace on one hand and a, a gold thing on the other. So yes, I guess she's a bit more of a fashion plate, but, but still, still there's a seriousness to her face. There's yes. still something. By the way, this sale, Ben Dealey's taken me to. Everywhere I look, my God, exciting things. Cracking things. I just thought we'd have a little look at this one. Let's step back in time, because this, this amazing marble statue, which is in the middle of the room here, uh, beautifully That's lit, this is called the Hamilton Aphrodite. Oh. First, second century Roman, and it's just extraordinary, don't you think? When I first saw it, I briefly thought it was the Lily Venus, a version of the Lily Venus, because it is this famous pose of the Venus Pudenda, isn't it? The one who's covering up her privates with her hands. Right. So it's the modest Venus. Okay. So that, that's one of her characterizations that was most popular in Roman times. Right. But yes, I mean, this is stunning. So what's the story of this, this piece? Um, I don't know uh, what the story is. I know I can t tell you the price tag. I think this is another two to three million dollar job. But uh, just when you see things like this, I mean, admittedly, there are some 18th century restorations like, like the fingers there, mm. which don't look quite right. But when, you, when I see things of this quality, it just, just slightly makes me weep as to how good the classical sculptors were. And then, particularly, just we, we have no, basically, no decent survivals of, of good easel paintings from the period. But if they were knocking out sculptors this good, which could rival anything people like Canova or Nollikens could do mm. nearly 2,000 years later, then just, just imagine what they were like at painting. Well, we do know a bit, don't we, because of all the frescoes that have survived in, in Pompeii, Herculaneum. I mean, there are, and those wonderful heads, you know, the Egyptian portrait heads from the coffins, yeah. the fire heads, I mean, they're amazing. Obviously, there was a deeply, highly skilled set of craftsmen at work, but yeah, I agree with you about this. I, I, I love. I love a good bit of Roman carving and, you know, it is such a cliché, but to think that that started out as a big block of stone <laughs> and imagining that inside it, mm. what makes it poignant is, is the gesture, the covering up of her, yeah. of her sexual bit. You know, it, the way that the actual hands go and the way the fingers are done. There's such sensitivity in the head. I yeah. mean, we're sort of, we're always led to believe that the Roman sculptors couldn't really do sort of sentiment and expression in marble. But I think this, this is a long way from the sort of blank visage we we usually encounter mm. in classical sculpture. And of course it probably would have been painted, this is the important thing. Do you think? Yes, it would have been painted, 100% I think that. Now this is the great discovery after Winkelmann, somebody realised that 
after all these years of, of cleaning statues up to look whiter and whiter and whiter, that originally they were painted, you know, the whole front of the Parthenon was painted, yeah. all Roman statues, particularly Venus's, she would have had a pink glow to her, and her eyeballs, for example, they would never have been left just blank like that. They yeah. would have had eyes painted into them. Really? So, I mean, there's nothing left, because that's 2,000 years of history's gone across that, but... Yeah, but she's lovely, I agree. Can I show you a little bit of British action in the next door room? Oh, God. So we've, we're now entering the, the gallery. We've got here on the left a Turner, uh. two constables. <laughs> and uh, the Turner here, is, this is a stonking picture. This is Good a view Lord. of Kilgarran Castle, which is in Wales. And um, I, I mean, I'm not saying this is a bargain, but this is a large oil by Turner, right? And you, when, you, when you chuck in a big name like Turner, you, you automatically think millions, don't you? Well, well I would have done, yes. This is three to five hundred thousand pounds, which is, I'm not saying it's, you know, a, a mere morsel, but it's sort it's of cheap to more me. accessible than you might think. For yes, I, I'm, I'm surprised by that estimate. Because it is a, indeed a cracking image, a great big castle on a big rock. And it's in lovely condition. I mean, it's, the paint mm. surface is so fresh. It's quite a it's quite a loose turner as well, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. got that. The, the it's early. It's early. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's not the kind of psychedelic sort of colours you get in the Fighting Tim Rare, but it's no. it's brilliant. I love it. If I had a spare three hundred thousand quid, well, I'd be tempted. You do. Don't get cute <laughs> with me. We all know you do. But yeah, I, I think that's rather beautiful too. I must yeah, say. I now, oh. on the next wall here, one, no. is a uh, picture of. Glebe Farm by John Constable. Now we've got to talk, we're going up in the world here, three to five million pounds. You see, that's interesting, isn't it? Why would this constable, which is what, half the size or somewhat slightly smaller than the Turner, and a much less dramatic scene, I mean, it's a sort of country cottage, some cows, a bit of a river, blokes standing there on a wooden bridge, why would that be considered so many times more desirable than the, the big Turner with a dramatic Welsh view? It's a good question. I think I'd rather have the Turner. But this is the Glebe Farm is one of those constable composition which you know uh, sings throughout art history, isn't it? It's one of his most famous topics, and um, it's it's not quite chocolate box, but it's the sort of composition you could imagine on a on a biscuit tin. It's a, it's a big seller. This composition. Uh, it's pretty chocolate box for me, I think. And I love constable, but this this wouldn't be the area of him that I would spend five million quid on. Um, but I mean, what is fabulous, of course, is it just seems to be in really good condition to me. I and mean, the constable is obviously famous for his blobs of paint, which when you get close, it sort of dis disintegrates into a sort of Jackson Pollock, doesn't it? When you stand back, they all make sense and they become trees and they become vegetation. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, and this is very vibrant that way. I mean, you can see why he was a big influence on the Impressionists, can't you? Yeah. Well, it's just being cleaned, so it's looking pretty good. And one of the reasons I can reveal to you about it, why it's just being cleaned, is because this was a recently discovered painting oh, really? was in an auction house in I think upstate New York only a year ago as a copy of after John Constable I think the estimate was in the hundreds of dollars made 50,000 and here it is and well, was that you was that you baby? no it wasn't me I completely missed it I didn't look at that sale at all yeah. I thought it might be you no I, I'm like that's way outside my pay grade I'm afraid <laughs> So wow. someone's going to do very well. Someone has, has made a fantastically good spot because there's, in my mind, absolutely no shadow of a doubt that this is 
100% my constable and it's in lovely condition and mm -hmm. it's a really good constable mm -hmm. and uh, I think I hope someone's going to do very but well. But you can also see why people would miss it because there is just enough of the chocolate box about it to, yes, to make you doubt it. Yes because, because uh, so many of these constables get copied endlessly don't they and the mm -hmm. sort of you can become over familiar with her the chocolate boxness of it and, I suppose that's and glide true. past it and not ask yourself, well, hang on, is this actually the real deal? I mean, just underneath here, you could see some of the, the shadows of the, of the squared up drawing lines. So all these things mm. that reveal to you that it's a, a work in progress in Constable's technique mm. and not a copy. And I suppose, of course, when he painted these, there were no chocolate boxes, as it were. You know, they, they put him on chocolate boxes because they were so good yes. and conjured up that image yes. of an uh, idyllic English countryside so successfully, didn't mm. they? So what do you think the Turner will make? Oh, uh, God. Um, let's go through them all then. I think, I think the Turner will make a lot more than that, personally. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go for two and a half million on the Turner. All right. Um, I'm going to go, I think the Constable, I think, I think five million's pushing it. I, I'm going to go for four on that one. Okay. Love the Van Dykes. Yeah. Love them. Um, but I don't know. They're two portraits, fairly straightforward bits of subject matter. I don't know that much about the market, but... Five million seems pushing it, but okay, five for that. Yeah. I think I'd pretty much concur with your your takes, Wild. I think probably the the Turner should make that much. It'll probably make a little bit less actually. I'd go for a sort of a million. But the weird thing is about the art market at the moment is that just we've no idea what's going on. As we record this, you know, the, the world is on the precipice of some possible new terrible turn with Omicron. Yes. And then everybody seems to be sticking millions into NFTs and all sorts of funny things. So who knows what's going to happen? Mm. Well, the big thing that's happened is that everybody's spent the lockdown sitting at home in front of their computer, and they turned bidding at auction into a kind of computer game. Yeah. Uh, so every time you jabbed away at another naught, up went the price, didn't it? So it had a very tangible impact. Well, let's see. Indeed, let's see. Oh, Bendy, that was such a lot of fun. And you, listeners, if you had seen Bendor Grosvenor as he strode through Sotheby's, you would have been so impressed. I mean, you're wearing some kind of fantastic Scottish tweed outfit, Bendy. I mean, you look like the laird of the locks, you really did. And uh, it was it was great to see you and great to see you looking so commanding. Well, I had to balance things up well because you, um, you were looking very distinctive yourself, actually. You had, uh, you had a, a raincoat on with a hole was patched up by gaffer tape <laughs> which is which is interesting so but when i go out i like to dress up and when you go out i think you like to dress down because what i can tell the, the listeners now looking down the zoom camera is you're there resplendent in your silk house gown uh looking very 19th century very loose and smart uh yeah you did you did look great listen home before we move on though so what happened tell us what happened in the auctions how did we do with our predictions well i think we were spot on with the turner the turner made a million quid so mm -hmm. we were both right about that. The Van Dyke, the pair of Van Dykes, made uh, their money as we predicted, six point two million, in fact. Okay, so yeah, more or less right. Which is actually the second highest price for a Van, a Van Dyke at auction. Um, the little Dobson possible, which I think um, the world decided was definitely not by Dobson, so that only made seven thousand pounds. Uh, hang on, how much? Seven thousand pounds. Seven thousand. Yeah, I predicted ten. And what did you predict for that? Well, I thought it would get. I thought people would get carried away with the hope there. I yeah. thought it would go to thirty to forty. But thirty um, to forty. Yeah. 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 Well, I, yeah, I can yeah. see why you're 
you know, you're such an expert on, on all. But yeah, go on, yeah, yeah. Um, and the constable, the newly discovered constable of Glebe Farm, which I think had an estimate of three to five million, um, didn't sell at all. So didn't that, sell at all. No, that bought in. Didn't sell at all. That's mm. see, I'm not totally surprised by that because it, it's an image that, it, on the one hand, it, it's pure constable, but it's also so much pure coffee table or chocolate box. Um, I can imagine it just it doesn't feel as if it's got the spirit of modernity going through it, did it? No, I just thought, I thought probably it was a little bit ambitious an estimate. So you know, sometimes when you get these newly discovered things, you have to you just have to temper your ambitions a bit and, and go in slightly yeah. lower and then the market can get carried away and bid it up um we didn't have a bet on what the beautiful hamilton aphrodite statue oh yes made. hamilton aphrodite so do you want to do you want to bet now the estimate was two to three million yeah oh i love that by the way um yes i mean that was a fantastic i, I think it was such a great piece of sculpture i would have said it probably got more than that wouldn't it um i'll say um uh, six to seven million that much 18.6 million pounds 18.6 yeah that's a shockingly large amount isn't it yeah i can see it i can just see it behind your desk now Rod. so God. don't pretend you didn't know it looks lovely in your study well it just it shows you two <laughs> things that the quality will as it were will out but also god there's a lot of money knocking about in the art world at the moment <laughs> i only discovered afterwards that the head was not original so the head was ancient but but not actually original to the body. So not a different body. Yeah. Eighteen million pounds for a headless statue. Yeah. Well, you know, eighteen million pounds for a neck down. Not bad. <laughs> it was a beautiful, touching image. And what what made the image was not the head. What made the image was the way the hands, the yeah. sort of gentle, sort of soft body. It was a beautiful thing. But God, eighteen million. Well, listen, Bendy, let's do it again sometime. I really enjoyed that. Thing is, it's that's pretty much it for part one of the Waldy and Bendy Christmas special. We've got part two coming up tomorrow, uh, but there's just one more thing we need to do, Bendy. I mean, it's a public service, really. Let me ask you, guess how many people have written in to ask us to play the Christmas song by the singing art critics? You know, that, that, that Chrissy classic where art meets music. How many people have written in, Bendy? Um, one. <laughs> no, <laughs> none at all. None, none at all. Nobody's written in. But is that Not even tear? Come on, is that going to stop us? No, it isn't, Bendy. So here we go: the singing art critics and their Christmas special. Let you down. Come on, come on, it's Christmas. Santa is on his way. The taste is looking merry, and so is the piano. Tracy has laid the table, delighted by Martin Creed. Damien stuffed the turkey, and the Chapmans did the tree. Call it a tissue, the customer is on the screen. The is in a sad condition, the customer is on the screen.
Christmas comes around. Come on, come on, it's Christmas. Santa is on his way. The Tate is looking merry, and so is the Vianne. Tracy has laid the table, the lights of I Martin Creed. Damien stuffed the turkey, and the Chapmans did the tree. Chapman's did the tree. Yeah, the Chapman's did the tree. 